0: Well, good evening, friends. It's good to see you this evening on this nice, chilly uh, Wichita evening. Um, glad you're here. I know many of you, if not most of you, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Marquez. I'm on staff here at Eastminster, and i um, grateful to be here with you this evening, and our text tonight uh, comes from the Gospel of Mark. Of course, I'm sure you've picked up on the theme. For those of you who've been here with us, we will be in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time, as this is the sermon series that Pastor Stan has been working through on Sundays. And um, last week, you heard from Mike Jaderston. and so I am up this week. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us, but you are welcome to follow along if you'd like. And just so you know, I am reading from an NASB translation, just for those of you who wonder, Um, I know not everybody's translation will look like that, so I just want to let you know. So listen to the words of the Lord. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came to Jesus and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a new patch of unshrunk cloth On an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away from it. Making the tear worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word. For by it, Lord, we live. By it, we are nourished and fed. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your gracious activity amongst us this evening, that we would not only understand your word, but that you would give us power to carry it through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a book written in the early 1980s. It was called Idols for Destruction. It was written by uh, a man by the name of Herbert Schlossberg. I don't know how to say it. He was Jewish. Schlossberg. Um, And I don't know, a couple of years ago somebody had told me about it, thought I might be interested in it. And so I got the book and read the foreword. It was the foreword was written by a guy I used to really love to read. Some of you know Dr. or not Dr. Charles Colson. Um, if you don't know Charles Colson, he was a man in the 70s who spent about seven months in prison because he had his hands in the Watergate scandal. He was a good friend of uh, President Richard Nixon. And so he spent some time in prison. Um, he became a follower of Jesus in prison. Um, he wrote pro- prolifically on you know, politics and stuff like that, and he actually started a prison ministry that today in our country is actually the largest prison ministry to prisoners and ex-prisoners. So that's why I was interested, because he wrote the foreword. But what I found in the foreword that kind of turned me on to wanting to read this book was um, Colson was talking about the author Schlossberg's his his wrestling. Schlossberg was a Jewish man. He came to faith in Jesus, I think maybe in his 20s. Uh, He served in the military, and then uh, he ended up coming back and going to an evangelical college. And in his experience at this evangelical college, uh, the, the assumptions and the practices that he saw in this college led him to think and to believe that Christians should always be against culture and Christians should always isolate themselves from culture, okay? So we can't rub elbows with those bad people. Well, a number of years later, he, he began um, participating in and joining a church that was in the mainline affiliation of churches, and uh, the assumptions and the practices of this church led uh, Schlossberg to believe, um, well, uh, maybe we should accept everything that the culture throws at us, that we should not make any qualms about what they practice, what they think, believe, say, or do, And so this book was kind of the result of that wrestling that Schlossberg had. Should we as Christians capitulate to culture or should we isolate ourselves and always be angry with the culture? His struggle is is not new. Uh, In fact, Mark chapter 2 reveals to us that there was already an established religion of the day. Um, And Jesus was public enemy number one of this established religion, and uh, Jesus was actually the chief challenging officer, the CCO of this established religion. He had a tendency to upset kind of the apple cart. Um, But there was one line, just one line in this book, Idols for Destruction, that, that Schlossberg, that just caught my attention. It was in the eighth chapter, and he just makes this statement about the Bible, And uh, I I just thought it was a helpful way that when I read Scripture, this is always now what I think of when I read the Bible. He said, The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. And I think this is the theme that characterizes Jesus' own life and ministry. The way things Jesus does, the way he does things and the things he says about himself are very counterintuitive to a world that is dead to him, and even those of us as his believers, uh, sometimes Jesus says and does things that kind of, quite frankly, make us blush a little bit, and we feel a little embarrassed, and we're going to see this, I think, in the text. Sometimes we as Christians are uncomfortable with the things Jesus says and the things he does, and we'll, we'll see this here in a moment. And so in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, what I see is a growing opposition to Jesus, and this growing opposition is the opposition of what I think the religious establishment is at that day. And so this, this current, the current religious establishment, they're critical about Jesus' claims about himself. They're critical about the people Jesus associates with. And in our passage today, they're, they're um, critical of the actions of Jesus' disciples, and so there in verse 18, it says John's disciples, and it's talking about John the Baptist, and the Pharisees, they were fasting, okay? And they come, to Jesus, they come to Jesus and they say, why do John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and why do the Pharisees, why do they fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Now, I think the implicit assumption Uh, Held by these disciples who are asking Jesus this question, I think if they were really honest, they would say something like this. "Um, Jesus, um, we can see very clearly that your disciples' actions do not comply with the standard operating procedures of the establishment. And so, um, we're asking a question. Now, maybe I'm reading into that a little too negatively, Okay, so when I, when I read Scripture and when I try to understand it and interpret it, I don't want to be um, unnecessarily belligerent. I don't want to read into the text. Um, maybe their inquiry wasn't as fraught with self, as much self-righteousness as I can kind of smell. It, it might not have been, but I did consider that, and I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt because I like to receive the benefit of the doubt, but in light of the There's four total questions in this chapter. In light of the two previous questions that have already been asked of Jesus, I think this question has an air of opposition against Jesus. And so let's look at these two previous questions in Mark chapter 2. Last week, Mike Jaderson preached a great sermon for us on the man who was paralyzed. And so um, after Jesus, remember the paralyzed man is sitting there and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And it was like the most anticlimactic moment ever. He wanted to walk, but he says, you are forgiven. And after that, it says in verse 6, some of the teachers of the law, the religious establishment was sitting there and they were thinking to themselves. Now, they don't, they don't express their question verbally. They just say, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the question is in opposition to Jesus' claim about himself Now, they don't air this publicly. It's only hidden in their hearts, okay? And the interesting thing is, they actually hit the nail on the head. They know what Jesus is claiming. They know Jesus is saying, he is God. And even though their doubt and their unbelief is hidden in their hearts, in verse eight, Mark tells us, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within their own hearts, Jesus said to them, why are you reasoning about those things in your heart? And so the teachers of the law know Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus lets us in on the fact that he knows he's God, not only because he can forgive sins and then he tells that man to walk, but also because he can read their minds and hearts. I don't know what any of you are thinking. I'm sure there's a few of you right now thinking this is boring, okay? But I don't know what you're thinking. Jesus knows what these men are thinking. So Mark is very clearly telling us Jesus knows and is aware that he is God. But it never dawns on these religious leaders. They don't think for a moment, maybe they could just put all their assumptions aside and say, is it possible for God to become a man? Now, when I say it like that, that sounds really reasonable, I think. But they don't think that. To those of us who already believe that Jesus is God, we think, yeah, that's a pretty reasonable thought. It's true. But to those who don't believe, the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that we believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man, um, it looks like a disaster to the outside world. It looked like a disaster to these religious leaders. No way can God become a man. And so in that moment, I wonder what Jesus' disciples thought. I can can consider some well-intended disciples of Jesus today saying, okay, Jesus, we have a strategy for reaching the Jews, but it doesn't include you saying you're God because that offends them. And so sometimes when Jesus makes these claims, we think we have a better plan and strategy for reaching people because the way Jesus does it sometimes doesn't set well with the people he's communicating with. Jesus knows what he's doing. It looks a little disastrous to the world. We're a little uncomfortable with it. But Jesus says what needs to be said, and he does what needs to be done. And so this first question that Mark records for us from the opposition tells us and reveals to us that Jesus knows himself to be a forgiver and a healer, and that he is God. The next question that is asked, actually Mike Jaderson is going to preach on this passage next week, but I'm going to reference it. This question, it's on the negativity, and and now the religious leaders, they get a little more bold. They're not just asking the questions in their heart. I see kind of, they're moving towards now, they're going to ask this question to Jesus' disciples. They don't ask Jesus yet, but they ask his disciples. And in verse 15, they say, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Levi was a tax collector, many... Tax collectors and sinners, okay, so when Mark records that, he's not trying to flatter people. He's like saying, these are the most despised people in their community. Um, Was eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked the disciples. So in the first question, it was hidden in their hearts. I don't believe this man is who he says he is. The second question, they're actually getting a little more bold. They're asking Jesus now, or they're asking his disciples, why does he eat with those kinds of people? All right. Um, I graduated high school in 1997. Um, When I graduated high school, I had not applied to one university. I managed to take the ACT test the second half of my senior year for the first time. I never took the SAT. I didn't study one iota for it, and it showed. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you I scored a 19 on the ACT. Okay, So what I ended up doing is uh, students in our town, we only had one high school, and there was about 350 in my class. Uh, If you you scored kind of in the top 20% of your class, you could get a partial scholarship to the local community college. And by God's grace, I graduated within the 20 percentile, and I went to Central Arizona College for two years. Now, um, my GPA at the junior college was nothing to write home about. It was not even worth putting on a resume. I just wanted people to know I finished two years of community college. Now, I share this with you because I would have been a prime candidate for one of Jesus' disguised disasters. Jesus probably would have been quite all right with associating with me But according to the world, he should be seeking out the Ivy League graduates who have summa cum laude on their banner, and it's written in bold print on their resumes. Now, Mike's going to elaborate more on this, on these sorts of people whom Jesus associated with. But according to the world, Jesus should associate with different sorts of folks. Okay, and so Jesus spends time hanging out with guys like me who get average grades at community college and not the Ivy Leaguers. Now again, sometimes well-intended disciples of Jesus were a little uncomfortable with that too. We sometimes think that Jesus' strategy for evangelizing the world should be, get a shoe in Jesus with political leaders, get a shoe in with Hollywood elites, get a shoe in with those who have power or who have money. It would be better, Jesus, for your reputation. In fact, it, it, Jesus is quite content with his reputation. It's our volatile reputation that we are always trying to preserve. We're trying to save face in the eyes of the wealthy, powerful, and the elite. But Jesus came to associate with a different sort of folks. And so, Jesus, we learn in these two questions, he's not afraid to give answers. Uh, I do think the people are opposed to him. And so, in the first group of naysayers, Jesus ans- answers their questions by healing the man. The group of naysayers, Jesus says, I hang out with sick people because those are the people who know they need a doctor. And now in this third question, they're actually bold enough to ask Jesus himself. So first, it was hidden in their hearts. Secondly, they ask his disciples. And now they're like, all right, we're going to summon the courage to actually ask Jesus face-to-face our question. And so that's what they ask him. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so if you're tracking with Jesus right now, uh, his current identity that he is God opposes the current established religion, the people he associates opposes the current established religion, and now the actions or the lack thereof of his own disciples oppose the current established religion. These men have taken notice that Jesus has not required of his disciples to fast. You see, the stricter Jews, and this would have been these guys, uh, they made a practice of fasting. These Jews, um, historically we know that they had a custom of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, and their fast was typically from 6 to 6, sunup to sundown. Now what you might need to know is that in the Old Testament, God did require his people to fast, but it was only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And so these guys didn't want to play on the junior varsity team anymore, so they took it to the next level. Um, And so they were, I don't know, maybe trying to get some extra credit with God, but uh, on on a little more serious note, I think Jesus has a way of making people who take themselves too seriously a little uncomfortable, and I think that's what's really happening right now. And so these men are doing something that God does not require. They are not required to fast two days a week. That's not a bad thing, okay? I don't think Jesus is upset with that, and we're going to see that in his answer, but Their pride has risen to the surface, along with their insecurities, because Jesus makes everybody insecure, Um, and rather than question their own practices, they question the practices of Jesus' disciples. Again, they could have asked the question, well, maybe we're doing something wrong. But no, because the established religion doesn't budge or move for anyone or anything. Before we examine or look at Jesus' answer, I want each of us in here to examine ourselves And consider what we have in common with these men who are opposed to Jesus. As I said earlier, those who don't believe in Jesus will always think that what Jesus says about himself and the things that he does looks a little bit foolish. But even those of us who follow and believe in Jesus will still struggle with some sort of pride and some sort of insecurity like these men who are struggling to understand Jesus." So in January of 2020, I will have completed my 17th year in full-time ministry. That seems, I feel old now. Um, So this means, and I've loved it, I was a youth director in 2003 is when I started. Um, This means that I have spent 17 years of my life working with church folk. Um, And let me tell you, church folk can be just as prideful and as insecure as folks who don't go to church. Um, If you don't think you're church folk, you might be church folk, okay? Um, Church folk have a lot of opinions about how Jesus runs his church, okay? Um, Some church folks say that uh, if you don't worship the Lord on Sunday, then it doesn't count. It's just true. Some people say, or some church folks say, that um, if you don't believe that the earth is young, then you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. And some people believe that if you don't think that the earth is old, then you think God is a deceiver. Um, Some church folk say that if you don't homeschool your kids, then they won't grow up to love Jesus. And others say that if you do homeschool your kids... They will be weird. (laughs) My whole family's here. Um, Some church folks say that if you're a Republican, then Jesus is embarrassed of you. And if you're a Democrat, you're on the side of the enemy. And if you're an independent, you are just lukewarm and you can't make your mind up. Some church folks say that if you don't worship God in a traditional style, then He cannot be glorified. And others say the only way God can be glorified is if you sing without instruments. Church folks say that you don't know God unless you speak in tongues. And other church folks say you're not a really good Christian unless you've read the likes of John Calvin or Augustine. Some church folks say that if you don't believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium, then you're not a really good Christian. And some Christians say that if you have tattoos, you don't know the Lord, and others say you're not really a Christian unless you think all lifestyles are permissible. The church folk that Jesus is encountering and talking to think that Jesus and his disciples do not take God seriously. Because fasting is the telltale sign as to whether or not you take God seriously. And so Jesus responds to this sort of silliness. And that's when he says, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they're going to fast in that day. I'm guessing that those who heard Jesus' answer might have maybe asked, what's this whole bridegroom reference mean? This is cryptic or they would have known what a bridegroom is, but they may not be putting the pieces together. I like the picture that Jesus uses um, because all of them would have understood this imagery of a wedding. Um, The Jewish wedding was very interesting. After the ceremony, the couple wouldn't go on a honeymoon. Um, actually they would just open their house for a week and it was kind of game on. It's banqueting, it's feasting, uh, it's partying. And this, in the life especially of a lot of people who didn't have much, the wedding week was probably one of the most enjoyable and happiest times for people who didn't have much. And so Jesus is using this because the family and the close friends, the attendance that Jesus talks about, they were there, they were rejoicing, they were banqueting. In fact, there was a rabbinic rule uh, in history, and here's what it writes requ- require, uh, uh, as it relates to the wedding ceremony. It says, All in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances that would lessen their joy. Which means, for all you dieters and keto crazies, all bets are off on the week of the wedding. Enjoy yourself, eat, feast, be happy. You are free to do so. And what Jesus is saying here that they may not understand, who is the bridegroom? Jesus. It's his presence in the lives of his disciples at that moment, at that point in time in history, that negates their need for fasting. He doesn't deny that fasting doesn't play a role in the life of the believer. He says that time is coming, but for now, this is not the right season for it. And then he, he, he illustrates this a little further, and he says no one sews a new patch of unshrunk cloth on an old one, or it's going to tear more, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins, if you don't understand that imagery. It's just uh, the, the, the skin of the animal would stretch so much, and then they would take the wine out and pour it, and it would be good, and you would never put new wine into the old one because it would pop and burst. And so Jesus is saying to these guys, I... <laughs> To require my disciples to fast right now would be like trying to put unshrunk cloth on an old garment and new wine into an old wineskin. It's just not going to work. I don't understand the times right now. And so, friends, in this encounter, Jesus helps us to see that his entrance into the world at that point in time in history is a game changer, not only for that current religious establishment, but because Jesus knows that your heart and mine is really good at setting up the religious establishment that's easy for us to follow. And says, Jesus is on the stage now and all things are changing. This establishment that Jesus is up against is at odds with him and his claims about himself. This establishment that Jesus is opposing is at odds with the people that Jesus is comfortable with being with. And this establishment questions Jesus' own religious sincerity because his disciples don't fast. And so let me ask you this, brothers and sisters: How can you and I know if our church attendance, if our participation in the Lord's Supper, if our Bible reading, our private devotions, or even if you fast? How can we know if our religious observances, our religious beliefs, count for anything, or how can we know if they're actually serving like the religious establishment to oppose Jesus? and to build up our own pride and ego. How can we know the difference? A number of years ago in my first church when I was the youth director, we had an elder um, who seems to operate as the chief curmudgeon of misery. It happens in churches. um, And uh, everywhere this man went, it it was really a trying and very difficult person. One evening, uh, he was at the church just before we had youth group, which is the last time any youth pastor wants their elders surveying the church when we're getting ready to start youth group, because that's when it's the craziest. And so this night, uh, me and my leaders, uh, we had decided to order pizza for all of our students. And, and we had a, always had a fairly large group of students. We could have anywhere from 60 to 100 kids. And so we ordered pizza, and we spent a couple hundred dollars money on pizza. And so there was a group of me and my leaders just there and he walks by and, and he made it very clear to us right there that uh, he couldn't believe how much money we spent on pizza. It made for a very awkward moment of silence. And then those few awkward moments were filled with the kind words of another man who said, you know, that's not too large of a price to pay to get to share the message of Jesus with a hundred students. And he just left it at that. He didn't say anything more. The following spring, another one of our youth leaders invited this elder to our yearly service slash mission trip that we would do. There was a family camp that was hosted on Catalina Island. I I don't like to call it a mission trip because it was so nice. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER But there was a family camp there, and we would go paint cabins, and we would take brush off, and we would get it ready for the summer, and this elder was invited by one of our leaders to come with us. And so, of course, we were wondering, how's this going to go? Well, we got home that Sunday evening, and this, um, this, this man came up to me and shook my hand, and it was like it was in a trash compactor. The guy was like 80, but he had that old man strength. And, um, and then he just pulled me towards him, and he gave me a hug, and he said, I'm grateful for all you and these leaders do with our young people. Friends, as a church, if our religious, political, and personal practices and beliefs keep Jesus at arm's length and prevent us from telling others who he is and what he has done for us, then we can know that our practices and beliefs only exist to make others know that we know how the world should operate, But if our practices and beliefs actually draw us closer to Jesus, if they draw us closer to one another in love and in service to each other, if they release us from worrying of what others think of us, and they release us to only be concerned with what Jesus thinks of us, then we can know that the wine we offer to Jesus has been put into His wineskin. If my youth team at the time would have operated according to the standards of that religious establishment that we had to confront in this elder, then maybe this elder would have never came to know the love of Jesus. We don't operate that way as believers. We operate the way in which our Lord has treated us. We oppose all those establishments that oppose Jesus, but we oppose them in the way that Jesus opposed them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you, uh, first of all, Lord, that Jesus is not afraid. He's not a coward. Um, It takes a lot of courage to oppose those whom he knew were opposing him. He's not afraid to answer their challenge. He does it in a way that everybody can see, Lord, that... um, That he is who he says he is. And so, Father, as we see this, as we see how Jesus encounters um, and opposes the establishment, Lord, this establishment doesn't allow people to come and see Jesus and know who he is. Rather, it keeps people away. It keeps people at arm's length. And so I pray for Eastminster Church, God, that we would be a church who opposes any establishment, Lord, uh, that opposes Jesus. Help us, Jesus, soften us to your ways and to your truth. Help us to remember that our religious practices and observances, Lord, um, do matter. And yet, we have to always be aware of how we are carrying those things out. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you defended your disciples. We thank you that you told the truth to those who opposed you. And we thank you, Lord, um, that you have called us to yourself. And so help us, Lord, to practice offering wine into your wineskin so that, Father, you can have your way with us and with our church. Have mercy on us, God. We thank you for this time together, and we pray that you be with us now as we prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the wine. In Jesus' name, amen.